I'm Michael Foster. And I'm non-tenant, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, skill, and wisdom. Michael, what's this episode about? Well, we should start where Scripture starts, which is in the book of Genesis, where everything is rooted in the creation of all things by God. That's where we understand God's design for uh, the whole world, the whole creation, and certainly what it means to be male and female. So that's where we begin this whole project. So, Nan, you and I started talking about this project months ago, I think August of last year, something like that. And um, we were trying to figure out a biblical doctrine of sexuality, and we we're discussing that. And as we started to talk about it, we saw that there was a lot of wisdom, guys like Jordan Peterson or the Red Pill guys, some of these non-Christian guys. And uh, and we also were feeling some of the um, the tensions and the stuff that's missing in the church world, the Christian world. And that's when we started to see kind of what was really missing. And how would you describe that, that key part? This thing essentially is teleology. The stuff that you learn in church is essentially just derived from either feminism or feminism's precursors and chivalry and that kind of thing. And don't have any real connection to the reality of firstly, what the Bible says about what God has done. And secondly, what uh, modern science, uh, I, I don't use the term pejoratively, but what modern science has, says about what God has done. And obviously you need to be careful of modern science because a lot of it's very secular, but the fact remains that there is heaps of on the ground knowledge that pertains to human sexuality that the church just refuses to integrate. And so part of the, the, the big downfall when we go to those non-biblical sources is that they lack, well, it's not that they lack, it's that they actually have a framework that's not Christian, a non-biblical framework. And so when we say teleology, we're talking ultimately about the purpose, right? The, I mean, how, how would you define te- teleology? is the end goal. What did God make this for? Yeah, so you can't come up with the doctrine of sexuality without asking why. Why are we here? Why are we male? Why are we female? For what purpose? You know, what? why has God made us different and how do we interact? We've got to lay the groundwork for that. And uh, scripture starts in Genesis 1, so that's why we're there. So where should we start here? Where does scripture start? Well, what you mean if you're talking in terms of where scripture starts overall it shows us the best way to describe it i think is to say god demonstrates what it means to the world and to fill the world and then he creates mankind to extend that work demonstrates for us in the first chapter of genesis before he creates mankind to divide and to form and to fill and then he creates man and he says right you go and do the same so God makes stuff matter. Matter is good. We're part of that stuff. Yeah. And then God starts to organize and bring order to the matter. And and you're saying basically that, uh, what would you say, fill and form? Is that the two mm-hmm. F words you're using? <laughs> That's the two F words. <laughs> but you can so, blame Alistair Roberts for that. 
Yeah, okay. Well, we're going to be riffing off a lot of his stuff. So God first shows what it means to fill and form the creation. Now, how how does that relate to te- teleology for us? Well, because when he creates man, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. And so in the first part of Genesis 1, you see him subduing, uh, dividing, essentially. And in the second half, you see him filling what he's divided up. And then he gives the same instruction to mankind. And there's an obvious relation between the male and the female in terms of how that works, because although certainly men can fill with various things that they've made and women can divide or form using their hands or whatever crafts and so on, um, at a very fundamental level, men are clearly created for subduing and women are clearly creating created for filling because they're defined by the fact that they can create more life and men are defined by their strength, which is, um, oriented toward uh, firstly taming a wild creation and secondly building up from that so so basically what you've gotten us through here is um chapter one verses one all the way down really to day six where it picks up in uh verse 26 that's right and that's where god says let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky over the cattle over the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is this is pretty key to our doctrine of sexuality. Sometimes it's called uh, the cultural mandate. I personally prefer the creation mandate. I don't know. Do you have a preference on what you refer to it as? I think calling it the cultural mandate is kind of confusing, given that we talk about culture in such a varied way now. The creation mandate makes much more sense because it brings it back to creation. Yeah, and that, I like that because it, it, it uh, you know, I like to use the word created order, just the, the, the way God ordered things and put them together in the creation mandate is a reference to that as well. Basically, you just gave us an overview of verses 1 through 25, and that gets us to verse 26, which introduces us to the creation mandate, part of which, and a very important part, is where God says, let us make man in our image. How does that relate to the creation mandate and also our project on whole? Well, if you look at the way that he frames the image, he says, let's create man in our image and let him rule. And he repeats the word rule multiple times. I think it's seven times he says, rule, 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 rule. It's just kind of really hammered in. Especially obvious if you just take out, if you kind of abbreviate it and take out all the examples of what we're ruling and just repeat the word rule. Uh, this is the word reign. It, it refers to dominion. It refers to uh, kingship. And in the ancient Near East, the image of a god was, or the, the term image of god was typically uh, referred to uh, both sonship and also servanthood. And so what he's doing is he's saying, man is to represent me on the earth. He's to carry my name into the world. A family member, he's a son, but he's also a servant. The, the idea of what he's doing is to continue my work. Um, so when Jesus comes, you see that he, especially in John, it's really obvious is talking about how he's the son and how the son does only what the father has given him to do and he does what he sees the father doing so the father is an example to the son and the son carries on his work so how does that connect and how does that affect what we mean by the creation mandate then means that we have been given the task of actually turning the world into a place where god is fully represented 
family side uh, on the one hand and also fully worshipped. So that's the, the servanthood side on the other hand. So we're doing his work. And part of that work, of course, is also worship. So in a sense, you could say all of the work is worship because everything that we do is for the glory of God. But times when we are specifically worshiping and then there are times when we're just doing the work God has given us. And that's a different kind of worship. Romans, um, Romans 12 would say it's a spiritual service. Yeah, it makes sense. I was thinking about this today. I was reading Acts, is that in the Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, he uh, quotes Second Samuel, I, th- I think it is. He uh, quotes where God says, heaven is my throne, earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house, referring to the tabernacle, will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? In that passage right there, you've got three things. You've got the idea of God as a king, mm-hmm. right? My throne. Yeah, you have the idea of the earth as um, a place he reigns over and uh, his house. So we got the household of God. And again, it's in the context of the tabernacle or a place of worship. So God is a king. God is someone to be worshipped. God is building a house. And all that reaches way back here to Genesis 1, where we have essentially have God making the earth to be a temple, to be a place that he reigns over, where he fills his image through us, his image bearers, mankind. And then we expand his rule over the whole of the earth. So Eden, if you read people like Greg Beale or Desmond Alexander or, or a lot of those biblical theologians, They'll make strong arguments that Eden was something like a sanctuary, and that's where God places Adam and the woman. I'm sure we'll get to that more later, but then gives them this mandate to fill, right, and form, to expand the boundaries, and to fill the world with worshipers. In other words, key to the creation mandate is the the whole concept of expanding God's household over the the whole of the earth and filling it with image bearers who worships him. Is that is that a good summary? Does that make sense? It's a good summary. And one of the important things that we tend to neglect as Westerners is the close relationship between symbols and the realities that they depict. And so we think of when we see the word house, we just think of a building. Um, or if we're in the right state of mind, we'll think of a household. Whereas in the Hebrew, the term bait doesn't just refer to a building. It doesn't just refer to a family. It, it's really playing off the entire, the entire image, which is built up from the idea of a physical house and how that is a symbol for what God is creating in the spiritual world um, using his own people. And when we say God wants to expand his house, it's referring to both the, the family that he wants to build, but also to the fact that at the same time, we're building up physically and we're creating, a, the, making the world a, a kind of temple for him in, in the same way, using a physical image and the family image. Sure. And that's, that's the strength of the idea of a, as a cultural mandate. Mm-hmm. The cultural mandate is kind of emphasizing that other half yeah. of building up God's temple, the physical things. Uh, but it's funny, nowadays we hear it, uh, especially among like kind of new Calvinists or Kellerite types, where they emphasize the culture, but they don't have a strong emphasis on childbearing, on family, fatherhood, all that sort of stuff, that they've got it and just make it about symphonies or something, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and that's why really we, we have to have both of those parts in there. Yeah. So that that idea is key when we come to the creation mandate, right? The creation mandate is not just about having kids. 
it's not just about making stuff. It's not about being a, a gardener. It's not about vocation, but it's got this, this huge idea of worship. And really, I mean, this is the shorter catechism. If you're a Presbyterian like me, or if really, I think this is the same one in the, um, a lot of the Baptist catechisms. What is the chief end of man? Mm-hmm. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, it's a great, great answer. Too, too often, though, that's just understood in these really kind of ethereal, almost Gnostic spiritual sense, where glorifying God and enjoying him forever is understood only in a very spiritual, internal way, not in, in not acting out into the world, nothing physical, nothing interacting with matter. So one thing we want to emphasize on the creation mandate is that it's essentially to rule for God, so carrying his name into the untamed world. Part of that is expanding the boundaries of his temple. So we, we form, we divide, we rule through work. How, how would you fill in some of that there? Well, I think a lot of it can actually be expanded by thinking about what it means to glorify God, because we, it's, it's kind of interesting how you've got these kind of divides in Protestantism where, you know, Calvinists are all about the glory of God. And then Arminians like, Oh, you know, not quite so sure about everything being for the glory of God. And a lot of that I think comes down to people not really knowing what it means to glorify God. Because when we think of glorifying, we tend to put that in human terms. And we think if a human were to glorify himself, it would just look really kind of self-grandizing and selfish and stupid. And that's because humans are sinful and they're not perfect. Whereas when you talk about glorifying God, you're talking about magnifying his perfections. And in the Old Testament, especially when you talk about the glory of God, it's usually related to his strength and his power. And so when we glorify God by carrying his name into the world, we're expanding the boundaries of his temple, it's very largely by magnifying his power and his strength. And uh, that's, that's how men tend to glorify God. But we're also magnifying his beauty and the, the one togetherness that he brings into creation. And that is something which women have a unique role in as well, because uh, they will take what man has built and they will turn it from a house into a home. And I mean, you know, cushions were invented by women. I'm quite confident because men see no purpose whatsoever in them. Women will come into a house. And my, my wife tells me these stories because she's a big Reddit user. She tells me these stories of all of these. I don't know where she even gets them, but I guess there are subreddits where women get together and complain about the single men that they've met. And how many of them don't even have beds, for instance. Now, I mean, I, as a single man, I probably wouldn't really care if I had a bed because I've got other work to do and a bed is just kind of a luxury. But women will come into a house and when you get married, you notice this especially. They've got their ideas about how they want the house to be in and the way that they're going to turn that from just a kind of utilitarian space into a place where hospitality and companionship and beauty are all joined together. Uh, And this is something which... Men can only kind of imitate. Uh, I'm not saying that men and women are uh, men or women are better at, than each other at particular things always, but when you look at the way that women work in the home, it's definitely a, a key area that God has made them for. He said it's not good for the man to be alone because he's going to sleep on the floor instead of on a bed, and he made Eve. Yeah, I mean we'll get into this more in the the follow up episode, but in a nutshell, I mean one way I always thought about it is is men. We, we bring home the, the bacon, we bring home the flour, we bring, bring home all that. And the women, they make it into a meal, right? So what, what they are, they're refiners. 
So we provide for them the raw goods and then they want to come in and clean it up and inform it all the more. And that tends to be something I'm okay with. I'm I'm okay with that. Well, it very much reflects the structure that God goes through when he creates the world. He he creates the raw materials and, and then he fills it up and refines it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So then, so that's kind of, we expand the boundaries of the temple and we think of that mostly in a sort of kingly or um, royal sense as a ruler. So the other part of the creation mandate is, so we've got rule and subdue that comes up over and over again. But we also have be fruitful and multiply and fill. A huge part of the creation mandate, and one that is often ignored by uh, modern people who do not love children, is to actually fill the world with people. People are good. We just put, put something up on the Facebook page where someone was talking about one of the worst things you can do for the environment is have children. That's insane. Yeah, children, they're not eco-friendly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, children are, that's the whole point of the environment. God made the earth for us to rule over for his glory. And sometimes it gets messed up because people think of it, and we'll get to this just in a second, people think of it in terms of just having lots of kids. And this yeah. is pre-fall, so the idea is making more people that give God glory. So making more worshipers of God. And in that sense, we're priestly. Matter of fact, when God puts Adam into the uh, garden, into Eden, it's to cultivate and keep it. And the, the Hebrew words there, when they're paired together, they show up almost exclusively related to Levitical work in the temple. And we know that the, when we go into the inside of the tabernacle and look how it's decorated and everything, that it, it seems to be a clear callback to the Garden of Eden. So there's this whole yeah, idea of Adam as a priest. This makes sense, especially when you consider 1 Peter 2, nine, where after, as we're regenerated and called back to God through Christ, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, right? A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So again, this idea of a royal priesthood proclaiming his excellence into the whole world. Yeah, that's just glorifying God in the world. Yeah, it's, it's, so there's this whole meta-narrative. I know that's a noxious word, but there's this whole <laughs> plot line that runs through Scripture. You know, it's the amazing thing right. about, about Scripture. It all connects. So basically what we have in the creation ma- mandate is a call to fill the world with royal priests, right? Holy men. To create a, a family kingdom. Family kingdom. God's household. Well, that's easy, right? We've solved it. Now everyone knows the purpose of the sexes and no problem, right? Exactly. Nothing nothing bad happens. <laughs> nothing bad happens. So uh, why are we having to explain the creation mandate? Why do we have to explain the purpose of the sexes? What's, what's screwed this all up? Well, there was this guy called the Serpent, and he didn't really like the way that Adam had been given this rulership. He thought maybe he could get Adam out of the way because God had told Adam not to eat from a tree, and if he did, he'd die. So there's this kind of plot line of an attempted coup, and this results in a very divided kingdom. It results in Adam not being deceived. Eve is deceived, but Adam is not deceived, and he decides, well, I'm kind of probably better off carrying my own name than carrying God's name if it means that I get to eat this tree now and oh, this fruit now and he chooses to essentially short circuit what he had been well to back up I think the idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is probably actually a fairly good place to start just to 
help people understand what's going on there. Knowledge of good and evil isn't something which is forbidden to people at all. The knowledge of good and evil is is what Solomon asks for when God comes to him and he says, what do you want as I'm establishing your kingdom? Um, what can I give you? And Solomon says, I'm only a young child. I don't know how to rule. I, I don't know good from bad. Uh, give me the, the wisdom to be able to judge rightly. And God blesses him because of this. And this is the knowledge of good and evil. It just means being able to tell right from wrong and being able to judge well, which of course is one of the key functions of a ruler. It's how we represent God in the social realm is by being able to tell right from wrong. And so because of that, it doesn't make sense to think that Adam was never intended to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Rather, Adam was only intended to eat from it once he was ready to actually take up the rule that God had created him for. And so by trying to short circuit that process and take it himself, he realizes how small he is, how naked he feels. And he, I mean, by that stage, it's too late, but he presumably sees the magnitude of his mistake and ends up in the situation where he's unable to rule for God in the way that God had intended. Yeah, so ultimately, I mean, a lot of biblical theologians refer to that as the probation period, is the idea that Adam would be in a probation and eventually, you know, enter into all of that. So Adam's given this call to basically protect Eden, right, to keep and cultivate and um, what we have in Genesis 3 is God comes to him in the fall and says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, curses the ground, etc., etc. So ultimately what you have is Adam is a failed ruler and a failed priest. He didn't keep out this corrupting influence that's against God's word, against God's law, the serpent. And he wasn't an effective ruler either. He ultimately went along with his, his deceived wife. So I would say what you have is Adam failing both as as a king and a priest. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. He he goes along with his subordinate rather than correcting her. So sin enters into the world. It disrupts everything. Order's all messed up. And I often point out to people, basically, the flow of authority in the creation is God to mankind, inside mankind as a unit, it's Adam to Eve or man to woman, and then man and woman together ruling over the creation. And what I see here is a serpent. I know it's a spiritual entity, but in the in the form of a serpent, the creation comes to the woman, the woman to the man, and then and then God eventually the man tells God that he was wrong. So what you have is that a complete inversion of the, the normal hierarchy, like the, the pre-sin hierarchy is flipped in the fall. Do you see any issues with that? I think that the way that the Hebrew describes the serpent is deliberately ambiguous so as to bring out that inversion, yeah. Yeah, and so that's one of the reasons I, I think that he is, he comes out as a snake. So, th- so we get this messed up right away, early on, a man's rule expanding God's rule, protecting it, bringing glory to him is messed up right away. So the kingdom's divided between those who bear God's name and those who bear their own. So Adam is doing his own thing. They're going to be like God, which is the standard uh, deception. Is the, the serpent's telling them they're going to be like God. They already are. They're like God. They're made in his image. They're as like God as people can be. So then how does this plot line of two kingdoms at war start to play out? Well, you see it straight away in Genesis 4. Uh, You've got Cain. Cain kills his brother. Uh, So you've got this clear hostility, this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So Cain is 
considered the seed of the serpent on account of the fact that he is doing the serpent's work. Jesus talks about how the Pharisees are fathers of the devil. They're, they're fathers because they do the work of the devil. And it's just exactly the same thing. What makes you a son is whose work you do. You see someone doing it, you do it yourself, it makes you their son if they're in command of you. So you've got Cain, who's the son of the devil, and you've got Abel, who is presumably, um, with certainly the fact that his sacrifice is accepted by God, uh, the son of God. And Cain goes on to build a city. He calls the city after his son. So he's, he's expanding his own name into the world or his son's name into the world, depending on how you look at it. It's the same thing, really. It's just expanding the uh, sinful name of mankind into the world. And then at the end of chapter four, you've got this contrast with Seth, who's the new seed of the woman. And he is, instead of calling on his own name, he calls on the name of the Lord, the name Yahweh. And so you've got these kind of these two, in both genealogies, I don't know if you've noticed this, in both genealogies, you have a lot of death, obviously, because death <laughs> has entered the world. But in the genealogy of Cain, it's, it's all the more genealogy of death, where you've got this whole Lamech. He takes it took to himself two wives, name mm-hmm. of one, and goes on and on and talks about how he's uh, he's killed a man for he wounding. Glorifies the fact that he's killed a man. That's and right. He's going to exact seven times as much revenge as God was going to exact on Cain. And it's just kind of uh, magnifying the problem of death and the problem of violence. Yeah. So what we see right away is just the fleshly, depraved nature of the kingdom of man, as seen in Cain. And, and this idea that he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son, Genesis 4, 17. And then, like you mentioned, we have it with Seth calling on the name of the Lord. That's all that there was. It would seem maybe we're, we're reaching a bit. But this idea picks up again in a very important way in the Tower of Babel. So we have all of mankind gathered together. They're building this incredible structure and they're doing it. So they're all still one people. It explicitly says they're just one people with one language. So they're all still under the one king, God, and they're all continually refusing to do what he wants them to do, to actually represent his name into the world. They're continually trying to build their own name. The whole idea of the tower is that they don't want to be scattered lest they um, lose their reputation in the world. They want to have, they build a name for themselves by building, a, rather than building just a house, they build a giant tower. So come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, it's interesting. It's it's kind of an, ex- an expansion on what Cain was doing. God told Cain he was going to be a wanderer, a vagabond, wandering over the whole earth, spares his life. But Cain disobeys and builds a city, the very opposite of what God said. Well, here again, we have these people in Babylon building a city and a tower. And the reason they're doing it is that they wouldn't scattered over the whole face of the earth. Well, that's God's will. God's will is to mm-hmm. cover the whole earth with worshipers. So we see this whole inversion of the creation mandate here where man is building a name for themselves and they're actually not reigning over the world, which is just fascinating. And we, we were talking about this yesterday. I can't remember when we were talking about it, but we kind of have a similar thing playing out between Saul and David where Saul, so they, they want a king like the rest of the nation. So God gives them one, he gives them Saul, who is this guy that's um, really tall, really good looking, starts out well, seems, he seems fairly humble at the beginning, but towards the end, the guy's building a monument to his own name. And the the real contrast between Saul and David isn't that David's spotless. I mean, David's one of the more notorious sinners in the whole Old Testament. 
But we know he has a name after God, or his heart is after God, right? He loves God. He wants to glorify God. And one of his biggest concerns is that God would be, his name would be protected, whether he's fighting against Goliath or, or desiring to build a temple or a house for God's glory. So you've got this this whole tension between those that want to build up their own kingdom, build up their own name, and, and not expand, uh, kind of be contracted. And those that want to build up God's kingdom and honor his name, bring his rule over the whole world. So that idea is throughout the whole Testament. I don't, I don't know if there's anywhere else we should touch on real quick on that. Well, I mean, there are a lot of parallels between David and Saul and Jacob and Esau, and the kind of patterns that get brought out. But I think these are the clearest example. Nothing else springs to mind immediately in the Old Testament. But I mean, obviously, the, the whole trajectory is there into the New Testament. So let's get there. How do we get to the New Testament? Well, obviously God promises that David will have a son who will sit on a throne forever. And this is contingent on the fact that his son remains true to God's name, that he's faithful to God. And unfortunately, David's sons don't really do that because no one can, because we're all sinners. And so the kingdom of Israel, rather than carrying God's name into the world, you see that their repeated problem is idolatry. They're constantly whoring after other gods. And they refused to represent God the way that he intended, even though God at Babel had disinherited all the other nations and had said, right, it's going to be Abraham and me and Abraham's descendants and me. They're going to represent me in the world. Abraham uh, obviously was faithful and many of his descendants were faithful, but Israel as a whole as a kingdom, first of all, got split into two. And then both of those got sent into exile in Persia and Babylon. And by the time Jesus comes along, there really isn't an Israel. We've got people who've returned to the land of Israel from the dispersion. But Israel as a kingdom is done. Uh, it has a puppet king who's under Caesar and it's completely occupied. One of the things that's really interesting about the uh, a, a key historical difference between the Israel you see in the gospels and the Israel that you see in the Old Testament is that the Israel in the Old Testament, you never see anyone getting possessed by demons. And the Israel in the New Testament, demon possession is this ongoing widespread problem. And that's just demonstrating that essentially Satan has taken over this kingdom. Satan's spiritual forces are occupying this land, which was intended to be God's land. And so Jesus is the guy who has to take care of this problem. Jesus is the king who is promised, who will firstly crush Satan, but secondly... That's right, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That's right. right? I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Right. So there's this battle. I was talking about this with my kids just today. I was asking them where the first example of the gospel is, and it's here in Genesis 3. And what's really interesting is that the very first promise of the gospel is actually not given to Adam or to Eve. It's given to Satan, and it's a promise of defeat. So the gospel is a message of triumph, but it's also a message of defeat. And a message of war. It's going to. I think that's another thing. Yeah. I mean, as we talk, I Definitely. mean, a big part of this po- project is talking about masculinity. Christianity is a religion of conquest and war, not in the Islamic sense, but... Yeah. Our weapons are not made for carnal use. That's right, but... Um, but- destroying strongholds and tearing down every lofty argument. We fight against the rulers and the powers and the principalities and the heavenly places. Like you say, one of the main things we see in the gospel is Jesus demonstrating that he is above all these demons, right? He's casting out these Mm -hmm. demons left and right. This is reminding us that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy all the way back in Genesis 3.15, but also that he is the son of David, which ties into Babylon, uh, or the the Tower of Babel, 
which gets us all the way up to the day of Pentecost. So how does uh, Jesus being son of David play into this whole scheme? I actually have no idea where you're going with this. I mean, I, I certainly get how Pentecost reverses Babel, but how does him being the son of David fit in there? Well, here's what I would say. The interesting thing about it is uh, the Pentecost sermon focuses heavily on Jesus being the son of David. So verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So it all kind of ties together. We were talking about what, what what Stephen says right before he's martyred. Stephen refers to how heaven is God's throne and the earth is a footstool and he's building this household and this temple. And here's Jesus bringing all that stuff together. He is the, the high priest. He is the son of David. He's the one conquering the, the serpent. And it all ties together in this reversal of Babel where where men come together for their own name and they're speaking one language. They're, they're doing this work of building in one area to praise their name. And on the day of Pentecost, you see quite the opposite. You know, all these people suddenly who are Galileans that speak one language start to speak multiple languages. And when they hear them speaking, they hear them uh, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Instead of glorifying their deeds of building a tower or whatever, they're speaking of what God has done in the earth. So, And then that's going to be carried out into the nations by these people who are in Jerusalem for the Pentecost. So it all, in a crazy way, this all these themes start to tie together in the New Testament. That's what I'm talking about. So the dispersion itself of Israel into the nations was instrumental to God's plan of bringing the nations back to himself and creating a new kingdom out of them. It's this whole topsy-turvy thing that God just does all the time where he snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. Everyone thought, oh, Jesus is dead on the cross. Well, that's that. And no, that was the instrument of the establishment of his new kingdom and the instrument of our own salvation. And this is just the way that he works. It's this kind of ironic reversal that's constantly happening. And the same thing happens at Pentecost. There's this ironic reversal of the judgment where the people speaking one language heard multiple languages and are thus divided. People speaking in multiple languages hear one language and are thus reunited. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, this is, I mean, one of the reasons when you come to scripture, you're like, this isn't just 66 random books. I mean, it's the incredible cohesion of all Mm -hmm. these different genres, different authors, different cultures all come together with this one main point, which I think maybe we should step back a little bit to to the Great Commission. A lot of times people play the Great Commission against the creation mandate. But really, I mean, we're talking about the same thing. I mean, how would you, I don't know if you have an easy way to explain how the, the cultural mandate or creation mandate interacts with Great Commission. Well, the Great Commission is an expansion on the creation mandate. The creation mandate is to carry God's rule into the world. And the Great Commission is to carry God's rule into the world. 
all the Great Commission does that's different to the creation mandate is it accommodates itself to the current state of the world, which has fallen and divided. And so the Great Commission says, reunite the world, basically. Go into the nations and teach them everything Jesus did, commanding them to do it. Paul says in uh, Romans 1 that the gospel is for the obedience of the nations. The whole idea of it is to re-establish God's rule over the whole world. And that's what we are tasked with doing as Christians. We're bearing God's name into the world and we're making converts, taking essentially taking back the kingdom that Satan was ruling so that Jesus will be all in all. Amen. I mean, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He is the king. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Be fruitful and multiply. Mm-hmm. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, spreading God's name over the whole earth, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It it is a restatement and expansion of the creation mandate, which gets us to really our issue of of what we when we, we talk about the mission a lot. We're telling guys that they've got to get on mission. And so being on mission, a modern evangelical culture that is somehow detached from getting married, having children, you know, vocation. All that stuff is, um, I, I don't know if, if you agree, but it, all that stuff is just not emphasized in most churches. It's, it's mostly prayer, Bible reading at best. It's, it's things that all happen inside you. It has nothing to do with this created world. But that doesn't. that's not what the creation mandate or the uh, certainly not even the Great Commission is talking about. The Great Commission is talking about spreading God's rule in the whole world through making worshipers, which means making disciples of people that were born to non-Christians, but also having babies and raising them up to love the Lord and and, and use their gifts and abilities to glorify God. I mean, God, bring God's rule into every single thing uh, that there is on this planet. So yeah, I, what would you say to that? Well, I think you said it pretty clearly. The, the over-spiritualization of evangelicalism has led to essentially the denial of the creation mandate and the great commission. It's turned them both into these very internal things. And a lot of that has to do with people who are terrified of faith and works getting into contradiction with each other. Anytime you talk about how works are important in salvation, for example, like Paul does in Philippians, he says he strives for it and doesn't count it his own. Anytime you use that kind of language in modern evangelicalism, someone's going to come out and say that you're teaching works righteousness. And so people have got this really hyper-spiritualized view. You know, it's just all you need is faith. You just have to believe, read your Bible, do the basics. And, you know, that's as far as you need to go. But that isn't the world that God made, and that isn't the command that he gave us. I mean, that makes sense. It makes sense because we were talking about this recently, how there's a strange relationship between antinomianism, which is being against law, and uh, feminism and egalitarianism and and all that. And I think that's because law emphasizes rule normative, Mm. which is experienced in this world (laughs) through actions, through stuff. Yeah. And uh, and so they don't want to believe that that matter matters. Everything is happening in their brain. And that is not what Christianity is about. It's not what the cultural mandate or Christian mandate is about. It's not what the Great Commission. And that's part of the reason why we have to lay groundwork like this. Because what men, what men want to do from a very young age is dig in the dirt. From a very young age, they want to get on their bikes and go explore. 
from a very young age, they want to be involved in conquest. They want to take ground. They want to do things. They want to get bloody. They want to mix it up. And Christianity, as it is right now, is against all that physical stuff, all that natural masculine energy is not welcome in the church because the church has come to identify Christianity with passive tendencies, not active. And I, you know, obviously women are active as well, but, but not in the same way that men are. And so yeah. that's why we have to lay this groundwork because we say manhood is ultimately about a man building. It's what men want to do. They want to build. You know, that's, that's why video games are such a big deal to men. Men want to build. They want to conquer. That's why most gamers are males. Everyone knows that. So manhood is ultimately about building God's house by building his own. So we're expanding God's name. This is without a doubt spiritual. This is without a doubt about worshiping God, glorifying God. But we do it by building our own, using our gifts, our ability, by using our bodies, by joining our body to a woman. And, and bringing a family into this world, little image bearers of God and raising them up to fear God and praise his name. And that's why we have to lay all the groundwork here. What are some other things we need to get in here before we tie this episode up? Well, one of the things that it's worth talking about is the idea of playing a natural family against a spiritual family. Because someone's going to come and say to us, you know, you, you're building the household of God. That's a spiritual household. But you're saying you do it by building your own household. That's a natural household. And didn't Jesus come and say, you know, I didn't, didn't come to bring peace on earth, but to bring the sword and set father against son and mother against daughter and so on and so forth. So what would you say to that? Uh, I mean, what I would say is, here's what I said to my children at... We do devotions in the morning. I said, kids, I will always choose God over you. And I will always choose God over your mother. God is the center of my life. He is what this family is about. To be a foster is to live for the glory of the of God, the God of the Bible, the only true God. Now, I want you to live for that same God. Follow me. Follow me in this mission that I have to, to use whatever I have, strength, ability, time for his glory follow me. So what I do is I call my family that God's given me and I raise them in covenant to follow God. I recognize that some of my children could potentially be an Esau, right? They could walk away from God. But in my household, everyone will at least will live for the glory of God as much as I can call them to. You know, I don't know what's going on in their brain. But I call them to, and and, we'll, and and I think the Lord tends to honor that. I don't know. That's my answer. I don't know if that's a very good one. What would you say? Well, I, I agree with you. And I would also want to press against the idea that there's this sharp dichotomy between the natural and the spiritual family. And not in the sense that um, you can, you know, John is very clear. It's not the will of man. It's the will of God. You have to be born of the spirit, obviously. But if we take it back to the original plan, the original design, the original creation, the natural family and the spiritual family were the same thing. So it's only a result of sin that has caused this dichotomy to emerge. And it's only a result of sin that means that you have sometimes sons against fathers and mothers against daughters. So if you think of it in terms of the original plan, the original paradigm, the natural family when you have a son, the son does what he sees the father doing. And if the father is a godly man, the son will grow up to be a godly man. Does that mean that it always happens that way? No, because of sin. But the whole point of the gospel is to gradually 
reverse the problem of sin. And so to draw this sharp dichotomy and pretend like that's the final word on the matter just kind of ignores the whole purpose of the gospel and it ignores the whole purpose of the original creation. I think that's a good point. And if I could use this as an opportunity to make a Catholic lower C point is as a Presbyterian. So I baptize my kids um, like when they're very young and, but my reformed Baptist brothers don't do that. So I see a, a minor discontinuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant where my Baptist brothers see a more significant discontinuity. However, What's most important in both cases is actually the father fearing God and living a life of um, a holy life and calling his kids to faith and uh, and disciplining them. And so that's where uh, a Presbyterian and a Baptist, regardless of time and mode of baptism, we end up having a lot more in common where I could have a Presbyterian brother that could say, you know, they, they don't they don't discipline their kids. They don't call them to faith. Then what what good? What good is the sign of the covenant if you're not calling them to live out what the covenant means, right? And right. so I have, as I have Baptist brothers sometimes who haven't applied the sign of the covenant, as I understand it, to their children, but yet are calling them to live in line with it more than in a way than uh, someone that subscribes to my position would. And right. that just demonstrates how important it is. And we see this. We see this crazy stuff with that crazy stuff. Mom doesn't go to church, but dad does. Kids are going to probably go to church. Mom goes to church every Sunday, but dad doesn't. There's plenty of studies to show that. Kids probably aren't. Here's an even weirder one. Dad's fat. Kids are going to probably be fat. Mom's fat, but dad's skinny. Kids are probably not going to be fat. It's really strange stuff when you get into it and that God, how God works through fathers, which is, I think, why part of our project focuses so heavily on fatherhood and biblical patriarchy. Patriarch in the sense of a father, father rule, is that we, uh, yes, the world's full of disgusting feminists. The world is full of women with whorish behavior. And we could spend all our time talking about them, as some do online, but uh, we'll, we'll make more ground by building up men because God works uh, through fathers. It's through fathers that God expands his household to the whole world. God has made the world patriarchal. It's just the natural power structure of reality. You can't change it. Power can, uh, was it Doug Wilson says power can only be transferred, it can't be created or destroyed or authority. And that's true. But even when that's true, the authority has to be transferred from someone to someone else first. And that authority always comes from men because men are just made to represent God directly, whereas women represent him indirectly. Men represent God's strength and power and women represent his refining beauty. You can't smash gravity. And you can't smash patriarchy. Both are part of God's design, you know. So when people blame women for going off to war, yeah, they're responsible for going off to war. But who let them go off to war? It was the men who made those rules. Men were in charge of the army before women got in there. So why does this all matter? Because it forms a foundation for understanding everything about what it means to be a man, to be a woman, to be made in God's image. Everything is in Genesis. So next time we'll begin to dig into how this plays out in each of the sexes, male and female. But until next time, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 